Well, good evening. Glad that you could all be with us tonight. Um, hopefully you're not too tired. It is an hour later than you'd normally be here. So um, I'm already an hour long. So um, I know that's going to work against me, but uh, I want to assure you I haven't adjusted my sermon length at all to accommodate your tiredness. I want to speak to you tonight from the book of Ruth. Uh, It's a book that I've enjoyed teaching to our teens. Um, I didn't have a sermon for it. I had a series of lessons, actually, that I've tried to combine tonight to to try to to have a sermon for us. It's one story. It's too many chapters that we can't read it all together. But um, the points that uh, are there and the insights that come from it, I think, will strengthen us and and convince us that we need to stay in the place where God is king. As we begin, I've been been thinking about, you know, is there some type of story that I could tell that I know um, that would help us kind of relate to the characters that we find in this this book? There's Elimelech, and there's um, uh, Ruth, of course, and and her mother-in-law, I'm going to forget her name, Naomi. And there's all these characters in there, and and as I was thinking through, I was realizing, you know, we can't relate to them. Not at the beginning of this story. At the beginning of this story, they're kind of out of the place where God is king. And hopefully tonight, I think that when you're the type of people that will come back to church for a second time on a Sunday in 2012 in Canada, you're not the people that are outside of the place where God is king. So I'm not sure you can relate to them. It's more like um, driving along the road and you see somebody dumb who has done something dumb in their car and they've crashed. You know, um, we were, we were uh, going to Quebec, I believe, when I was 16, and we were on the 400 highway heading, heading up to Quebec. Uh, I don't know why we're going that way. <laughs> Anyways, maybe we were going to Muskoka that time. That's not the important part of the story. I know where I'm going in the sermon. I don't know where I'm going in the car. Um, but somebody came along the, the, the 400 speeding. They were just driving like crazy as Torontonians do. They were probably on their way to Barry. Um, trying to make it in record time. Anyways, they were driving so fast along the way, uh, they passed our van full of teenagers, and, and soon, soon, soon we came across an accident. This car had crashed. It was the, the hood was on fire. And we were like, that's just stupid, right? Like, of course they got what they deserved. Nobody in our car could relate to that driver crashing his car being dumb like that because they were being dumb. They were kind of outside of that place of safety on the road. They were driving way too fast. There's too many cars on the road, and of course they eventually got what what was to be expected. They crashed the car, and it, and it, and it was on fire. Um, and of course, we weren't thinking about safety or anything. I'm just kind of shaking your head going, that was just dumb. It was unnecessary. A driver that's driving their car safely and, and following the rules is not going to pass that kind of accident and go like, I can relate to that situation because they're trying to conduct themselves in, in the way that they're supposed to. But when we come to this story, we find some people that are not really doing what we'd expect them to do. So let me tell you a little bit about the book of Ruth. First of all, it's part of the extended biography of King David. Um, it's, uh, the scholars that, that understand it look at Jewish tradition and they accept that this book was probably authored by a prophet named Samuel. And Samuel was the prophet that anointed David as king, as the chosen king in Israel. And the connection for Ruth's life with David's life comes at the end of uh, Ruth in chapter 4, which just gives us a quick genealogy. It links uh, the child that is born to Ruth um, into David's line, and ultimately David's line gives us Jesus Christ, so they, they fit into this whole line of redemption that God's doing, but it gives us that information at the end there in the genealogy. Um, they had a son named Obed, and Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, and we know that David was the ancestor of Jesus Christ. So um, this is part of uh, uh, Jesus' history, where his family comes from, and Ruth 
in particular is who the story's named after. And she's just really an ordinary person. There's nothing really extraordinary about her. She's just a young woman who got married to, to a Jewish person. She lived in Moab, um, and she, she got married. Her husband died. Her sister's husband died. They're in the same family, and her father-in-law died. And there's really nothing exceptional about her except for the fact that she made one amazing, radical decision, a faith decision. And this has kept her name known in the successive generations. It was her decision to leave her land and her family and the gods that she knew and move with her mother-in-law to a foreign place where God was king that has us remembering her and honoring her with our time tonight and honoring the Lord, what he's done in her life. She pledged herself to her mother-in-law and to God with a, with a kind of um, very intense oath. We find it uh, in verse 16 of chapter 1. Ruth replies to her mother-in-law after she's been urged to go home, and I'll come back and read all of chapter 1 before we get into it tonight, but she says, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. That's a pretty serious oath, wouldn't you say? I know when we were teaching it to the high school students, I, I, I asked them, you know, could you imagine if somebody came up and wanted to be your friend and they came up and introduced themselves to you and said, hi, you know, I'm going to pledge myself to you for the rest of your life. Wherever you go, I'm going to be right there. And if you stay somewhere, I'm going to stay with you. And in fact, I'm never going to leave your side until, until we both die. And wherever you die, I'm going to be buried right beside you. And if God, if, if, if I don't do this, let God deal with me very severely. This was a pretty intense oath. All right? And it's this oath that sets us up to expect something amazing in her life from God. It's, just, it's, it's a faith and an obedience that we know as God's people that says, okay, conditions are right for God to do something amazing in this otherwise unextraordinary woman's life. So this is the story we find. It's Ruth. Um, there's four chapters. I said we're not going to read them all. But uh, when we start off this story, we can, we can know that Ruth and Naomi are confident of two things, maybe only two things, that the God of Israel could help them. The God of Israel, Yahweh, the one that Jesus Christ referred to as Father, the one who we worship and revere when we come here at Calvary Baptist Church. They, they believed this was possible, that they were in a situation, as we'll find out, where they needed some help, and they believed that God of Israel could help them. And second, um, Ruth was going to spend the rest of her life where this God was king. So let me ask you something as we get into it tonight. Are you confident that the Lord can and will help you? Are you confident of this? If you had the option to rely on yourself, your family, your heritage, your other gods, or to turn, ba- turn your back on all those things to pursue whatever it is God has in store for his people, could you, would you do that? Could you make this kind of decision, this radical decision, that would take your rather ordinary life and, and turn it into something extraordinary in the hands of God. Hebrews eleven six says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Let's read in Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. 
And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, not Oprah, by the way, and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as he has shown to your dead and to me. Excuse me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and wept aloud and said, uh, and, sorry, then she kissed them and they wept aloud. And they said to her, we'll go back with you to your people. Now, at this point, Orpah says, you know what, I'm actually going to go back home. But Ruth makes her uh, great pledge and her oath and says, I'll stay with you. I'll, I'll go with you. God's going to be, your God's going to be my God. Your people will be my people. Let's jump down to um, verse 19. Or 18. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. I want to let you know, um, as this chapter ends, there's already hope. Uh, this story goes on to, to show us how God works through um, situations. He's, he doesn't, it's actually not one of these things where it says, this is what God did. But as we read and we know the character of the Lord and we know how he's able to move things and move people, we understand that God begins to take care of these two women in their need. And there's already hope here when they move back to Bethlehem. But we're going to look at this story tonight, and I'm going to try to uh, help you see some of the things that I, I think are there to encourage God's people and challenge God's people as, as we look at his word. And, and hopefully tonight we'll, we'll leave um, with a few things that we need to think about and a couple things that will just keep us uplifted before the Lord. But let's pray before we move on. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for this opportunity to, to talk about your word, to talk about how it challenges us and how it shows us your greatness and, and um, your sovereignty over our lives, Lord. Father, um, I love this story. I love what you did in Ruth's life. And Lord, I, I pray that uh, you would do that in many lives around us. Uh, God, that you would just love to reveal yourself, sometimes in these subtle ways of your presence with us. Thank you for being king. Thank you that that never changes. Amen. So what are the facts of this story? First of all, if you, if you look at the, the beginning in verse 1, it says, in the days when the judges ruled. How many of you guys are biblical scholars. How many of you have read a little bit in the Bible know about the judges? A little bit. All right. If there's a pattern to the judges, it's this. You hear this pattern. It was in the days when the Israelites did something before the Lord. It's the days when the Israelites did sin, evil. Good guess. That was right. And then God raises up a deliverer, right? This is the pattern of the judges. And we can read these stories. We're reading them with our family right now. But this is this pattern that's going on. And, and this little sentence here, it was the days when the judges ruled, helps us understand that this wasn't at a time when God's people were 
living under his rule. This was a time when God's people were constantly rebelling and they were constantly finding themselves in trouble. God was warning them under the covenant, the Old Testament covenant, saying, I want you to live a certain way by my code and if you live this way, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to, I'm going to protect you against the people. I'm going to make sure you have food in your storehouses. I'm going to make sure you bear children. But if you don't, Bad things are going to happen to you. And he'd warn them, and he'd warn them, and he'd warn them, and he'd say, fine, you guys are insisting living your own way in sin. I'm going to let this stuff happen to you. So in the time of the judges, we have to understand, this is not a good time. This little opening phrase helps us understand that in this point of history, this is not a good time for God's people. They're not, even though they are God's people living in the promised land, they're not living as though the king is there. They're living for their own selves in their own way. And so there was a famine in the land. Right? This is what God said. If you're in the promised land, I'm going to make sure you have food. But if you don't listen to me, if you sin, if you insist on doing evil, if you insist on going after other gods, I will not protect you in this land, and bad things are going to happen. So right away, we read those lines. In the days when the judges ruled, and there, there was a famine in the land. This is not a good time. And then the third thing that helps me understand that this is an interesting time is that we find this man named Eli Melech. Two words in Hebrew. You know one of them, El. E-L, the name of God. The other word you might know, Melech, king. His name means God is king. And I find this fascinating. You might not find it fascinating, but let's, let's see if you do. Here we have a guy named God is king, and he's leaving Bethlehem. He's leaving the place where God was actually king, and he's going to an enemy nation, Moab. He's going outside of the borders where God had set up his protection. God is king, is taking his family, taking his wife, and he's going in this time when God is punishing them, allowing famine to come in the land. He's going to a place where they serve another God, and he says, you know what, I don't like how God's treating us anymore. I'm going to go see if we can make it, make it a better way for ourselves over here in Moab. And so this guy named God is king shows up in a place where a, a God named Chemosh was king. So this is a bad time, Um, there's a famine in the land, and the people that are supposed to be God's people are wandering about going after other gods and after other ways to to, um, take care of their needs. And so right away, if you don't understand these things, you can see that this is an unusual time for this story to take place. It's a a situation where God's people aren't actually up um, up to God's standards. And that's why I said it's hard for me to find a way to relate and put you into the center of this story because tonight, you know, most of us are going to feel in ourselves or at least want to say to each other, I, I don't think I'm outside of God's place. You know, I'm, I'm a Christian. You know, that means I, I, God's my king, right? But it, it's, it, this shows me that it's possible that under some circumstances, people will move themselves from where God is king into a place where something else rules, looking to take care of their needs, Anyways, he ends up in a place where, where this God named Chemosh is revered. And I want to tell you that Chemosh is trouble. 2 Kings 23, 13, just write down the reference. It says this of, of the God of Moab. He says he's an abomination. The abomination of Moab. There's a lot of things going on between Israel and Moab. Uh, Again, going into history, just setting this up, this is all flying by to the people that are reading this because this is, of course, their lives. But it's not going to maybe be right there and crisp for us. So let me see if I can sharpen it up for us, uh, for you. Let me, let me let you know about, uh, you know, you remember the prophet Balaam, the guy who was riding the donkey and tried to curse Israel. Do you know who hired him to do that? The king of Moab. Okay? The king of Moab tried to get a, 
tried to use divination to, to prevent the advance of Israel when they were being led out of the promise of Egypt into the promised land. Moab saw these people coming out and said, there's so many of them, let's try to stop them in their tracks. We won't try to fight them. God is already with them in victory. Let's call down from some spiritual demonic energy or whatever there is and see if we can get a, a curse on these people. And so the king of Moab tried to use demonic in, in forces trying to stop the progress of God's people into his land. So he hired um, Balaam uh, to, to curse them. And of course, Balaam has a visit from the Lord and says, you can't curse my people. You must say whatever I say. So he ends up unable to curse them. He ends up blessing them. And he says this to Balak, um, to Balak the king of Moab, uh, about, about someone that's going to come from Moab, I mean, come from Israel to defeat Moab. In Numbers 24-7, it says, I see him, but not now, this deliverer, this, this person. I behold him, but he's not near. A star will come out of Jacob, which is Israel. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of, of Sheth. That's in Numbers 24, 17. So there's this tension between these neighboring areas, okay? There's, so we see that right away. So this, this place where Elimelech goes, the, where God is king, he moves to this place where the people are already sort of enemies with God. That's unusual. That's, that's, that's not right. People would understand that. Let me give you another hint about how, how Moab is in, in the life of Israel. You know the story of Ehud, the left-handed assassin who killed a fat king? Do you know that story? Um, someone was telling it today. Mrs. Wilson was telling it to the kids today. Is Mrs. Wilson in here? Cheryl? All right. She's absent. Like Bueller. Yeah, she's counting. She's here, I know. But I, heard, I, heard, I saw her telling the story of Eglon. It's a great story to tell. It's from the time of Judges where this left-handed assassin goes up to reach the king, shakes his hand or something, and as he, as he makes this connection with the, with the fat king Eglon, who was the king of Moab, jabs a, a short knife in his stomach, and the king's so fat that the handle goes in and swelled up over top of his belly, just closes up, and he locks the door and, and runs away. Um, and it's just, it's gross. Yes. Right? But Moab's giving these people trouble. And after that day, it says that Israel, who had been oppressed by Moab for 18 years because they'd been sinful, says they, led a, they, they, they um, gained their independence in a war that killed 10,000 Moabite soldiers. This is one type of fulfilling of that prophecy that Balaam had. Um, later, David defeats them, and other kings of Israel defeat them. So there's this tension. That's all I really want to show you. In Scripture, you can follow it through. You can, you can do a quick search if you have access to some type of quick tool. Look up Moab. Look in, it, look in the prophets. You'll see that all sorts of woes and condemnation and bad stuff is predicted for Moab. So it just blows my mind when you open up this story and you think, okay, all along we have the people of God, the, the people that we look to, the people that we want to take examples from, and in the very beginning, they're totally out of whack with God. And they're going, this person, who could represent anybody at that time, I suppose, is looking in Moab, looking at Shemosh, saying, maybe I'm going to find some help for myself here, where God is not king. Does that make sense to you? Can you understand? This would be, a, I think, sort of a tense thing if, for people to say, this doesn't make any sense. This, is, this, this makes no sense to me. And I've got to tell you, when we see people looking for help, who already know the living God, trying to find help from somewhere else, it doesn't make any sense today either. So, it says that he, he takes his family there, his boys, they marry Moabite girls. See, it's just going, getting worse, right? These Moab, Moabite women, there was, there's a problem. It's not that God was uh, racist or anything like that. It's that this culture worshipped other gods. So, back in Deuteronomy 7, verse uh, 3 to 4, why don't you turn there? Well, let's look at some, some Old Testament law. 
Sorry for all this history, but if you don't know it, you can't understand what's going on here because it's out of this, out of this development of things uh, that we understand God's graciousness and the movement of in, that's happening in Ruth's life. Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 to 4. Malon and Killian take wives from among the Moabites. In verse 3 of chapter 7, after God has said, I'm going to bring you into the land, there's going to be people around there that I want you to conquer and, and, and drive out. He says, don't marry them. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their son or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Okay, so right there in the, in the Old Testament law, we now have Elimelech's sons, Malin and Kilian, taking wives from Moabite, Moabite daughters. They're breaking the commandment. So this is not good. Now we all understand that, right? It leaves me, it gives me the opportunity to talk a little bit about marriage and what, God does, what does God intend for our marriages. Well, first of all, we understand this. God intends to put his blessing on marriages between believers, all right? Marriages between believers. The prohibition in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, is meant to benefit us as, as God's people. Jesus taught later that a house divided against itself, specifically between Satan and Jesus, or anyway, logically anyways, it won't stand. And then Paul asked, what fellowship does darkness have with the light? As Christians approach the time in life to select a spouse, it's imperative that this teaching should be big in our minds. Um, believers should set a standard. And by this I mean the standard would be this. I will marry a believer or I wouldn't marry at all. That's what a standard is, by the way. Not, a, not an ideal. A standard. I would marry a believer or I won't marry at all. I won't even flirt with the idea of marrying someone who could undermine my faith or compromise the potential for the blessing on my future. So the command in Deuteronomy prohibits believers from covenanting, covenanting themselves, this is a big word, covenanting themselves in such a manner to violate the existing covenant that they have with the Lord. What am I saying there? What I'm saying is each Christian in this room, when we come with a faith decision to say, I will follow the Lord, we're, we're entering into the new covenant, marked by Jesus' blood, says, I'm, I'm his, he's mine, we're together. And Jesus says, if you honor that, you're not going to join yourself to a covenant that violates that commitment. And a marriage to someone that doesn't worship God, a marriage to someone that worships some other God, would violate that. And so it's a warning. When you marry someone who is controlled by a different spirit than the Holy Spirit, you break faith with Jesus Christ. So it's important that we, we understand that these, these men here were outside of the covenant reality that they were supposed to be in. So everything's gone wrong. So here's what happens. It doesn't say this was a punishment, but again, you're kind of wondering, okay, what happened? So Elimelech goes to Moab, this place where Chemosh is, is, is the god. God is not the king there. Chemosh is the god. Elimelech dies. His two sons marry these different women. They die. Now we've got two young women and their older mother. They've got no children. They've got no men in their lives, and they're all alone. They're living in this land for 10 years, and that's, that's the tension that this story sets up. They're in this place where they find themselves not confident anymore that things are going to go well for them. They're in a place where God is not king and they need some help. So they make this radical decision. They hear that God is now blessing his people again back in the land where he is king, and they said, let's go home. And as they go home, we get treated to some of the, some of the teachings and the insights that come from this story. 
and in this story, I see that there are um, three big benefits, or three benefits um, that come from being in the place where God is king. That's what I want to share with you tonight. And the first is this. As we get to the end of chapter one, uh, Naomi gets home, and, and she sees her friends, and they're saying, is, is this Naomi? And they're looking at her from a distance. She comes in, this, she's been worn down by life, you can imagine, someone who's Seen, seen a lot and lost her husband and lost her, lost her sons and has made this journey and she comes into town and, and people are kind of looking at her and you know, she, she looks, it looks like Naomi, but she doesn't seem to, to be as pleasant as her name suggests. That's what Naomi means, by the way, pleasant. And she says, look, guys, when I left here, my life was full. When I, when I left you, it felt like my life was full, but I'm coming back empty. So don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara because I'm bitter. The Lord has taken stuff away from my life. So in the place where God is king, I want you to understand this. If we, if we go on to read, this story ends up, Naomi shows up in town. She's got nothing. She's got no future. She's got no heirs. She's got no one to take care of her property. And, and if you don't understand the con, con, uh, context back then, uh, there wasn't a whole bunch of social services for women to rely on in these days. Their, the safety net was marriage. The safety net was family. The safety net was community. And so when they were on their own and they don't have family, they don't have men in their lives, they don't have all this stuff, there's no safety net for them. And so when she comes back, she's like, what's my safety net? I have nothing. So she starts off that way. But as the story goes on, we begin to see that God changes her life from this bitter place to a place where it gets better. So at the end of the story, um, in chapter 4, her testimony changes. In 4.15, she says this, after saying, don't call me Mara, way in the beginning. In 4.15, she says, or the people save her, um, praise be the Lord, I'm reading in verse 13, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. All right? She was bitter, and then this word here says, She's, she's better. Ruth, um, Ruth is a blessing to Naomi. Naomi has Ruth. She has a, a grandson. She's, she's, she's not hungry at this point in the story. She's not bitter any longer. And this is one of the great movements from this story. This woman who is outside of the place where God's king makes this radical move, moves home and, and, and falls on God and says, I need you to take care of me. She shows up. At his doorstep, bitter. Life has dealt her a rough hand. She understands that even God might have something to do with that. And she shows up bitter. Her testimony at that point is, God has emptied my life. Let me ask you something. What kind of testimony is coming off your life right now? Is it, is it one of bitterness? When people ask you about your, your relationship with God, or when, when they're not even asking, and they see you and say, is that... Is that so-and-so coming down the road, coming into work, coming into school, heading out, heading out in the neighborhood? I see them, but I'm looking at their face, and they don't look like they're pleasant anymore. Their faces look bitter. Their, their life looks like it's hard. And you speak of them and say, don't call me a Christian. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. God has made my life bitter. Is that your testimony? Would you tell people that? Or is your life, is your testimony about God giving you something better? About showing up in the place where God is king and coming with nothing and coming from a place perhaps of bitterness, but instead you found that God has given you something better. 
that he's filled your life? What's your testimony? Which story are you telling? Has God made you empty or full? Well, that's one, one of the benefits we get. God, God fills us up. He gives the bitter something better. You know, when you're bitter, it shows up on your face. I really believe that. I don't know if I can prove it, but let me ask you something. You know any bitter people? Can you tell when someone's bitter about something? Right? You know what it's like to, to taste something bitter. Right? You, you, you get that scowl on your face, right? You have, you have a look about yourself. Christians, what look do you have about you? I'm not asking you to, to, um, to change anything. I'm not asking you to just to pretend that you're happy. I'm just asking you to consider if you looked in the mirror, one, two, three, and then looked at your face, would it reveal bitterness? Or would it reveal joy? What's the witness? What's the story coming off your life right now? The bitter get better in the place where God is king. Let's move on. So that's one story following Naomi. Let's look at Ruth's life a little bit. The second thing I notice in this story is that the desperate find the deliverer. If we go back to chapter 1, everything starts in chapter 1 where everything's kind of messed up. In chapter 1 it says this, um, Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband, and Ruth was obviously in that situation too. They're alone. They're alone. Um, in chapter 2, they show up in Bethlehem, and uh, they're hungry. Okay, these, these, these women, all, all widows, all looking to kind of get back on their feet in the place where God is king. They're alone. They're hungry. And so we know they're desperate um, because there is no social net for them. There's, there's no place for them to go and get a handout. So Ruth has to go out. And, and start gleaning in the field. She has to go out and actually physically work, follow behind the people that are in the barley harvest who are, who are collecting all the grains. She has to go out there and pick up what's left over. And from that, she's going to hope to make, get enough food at the end of the day to keep her and her mother-in-law going. She's desperate. She's working, you know. She's coming home, and, and, and she's got dirt under her fingers, and her clothing is, 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 going, to, is going to smell of the earth and, and, of the, and of the sweat. These are not the situations that we want to find ourselves in. Most of us, um, at least me, I'll, I'll just talk about myself, most of us don't like manual labor. Anybody a big fan of it? I mean, not under harshest considers. Okay, you guys are great. We have um, a property committee, and um, they're always looking for hard, hard workers. I did a summer or two of, of, of manual labor. My job was glamorous. Um, it was rolling mats for Canadian linen, uh, those mats that everybody walks on, right? And, and it, uh, the job was, was uh, I stood in front of a machine like this, picked up these big mats that came out of this dryer that, that dried them to like 155,000 degrees, and then um, you had to put your hand on the, on the rubber side and burn them, and then you'd feed them in this conveyor thing and roll them up. And... Uh, and that's what I did for eight hours straight a day. I hated that job. It's one of those things where they say, make them work. They'll know that they've got to stay in school. Totally worked for me. But I remember coming home and, and, um, and, uh, and seeing that there'd be dirt on my fingers that I could never clean off, right? And, and, and I was glad they gave me clothes to wear at work because they just stunk by the end of the day. 
You know, um, it was so hot in that place. I don't know why they didn't give people air conditioning because they needed it. But, um, you know, it was just, I had a fan on me. I'd soak my shirt before the shift would start. I'd go into the, into the men's room and just, just drench it with cold water, stand there in, in front of this dryer and just bake and come back and the, sh- the, the, the shirt would be completely dry. And I'd do that all day long just to stay cool. Um, but it was hard work, you know. Um, I was willing to do it because I was a teenager and I wanted money. Right? I was desperate for some money. But here is uh, Ruth, and she's desperate to keep Naomi and her going. And so she's out there picking up the grain, picking up the stuff. Right? She's desperate. And as she's out there in this field, it just so happens, it just so happens in the place where God's king, that she falls upon the, the, the field of the man who God would call to marry her. Isn't that amazing? What a coincidence, eh? I mean, I mean that's how it's presented. It never says, and God brought her to the field. There's no kind of language of that in this book. It just happens by and by. You know, some of you guys know that life goes like that with God, right? You know, I, I'm, I still sometimes want to, want to see that God is, you know, God brought that person in my life or God put me in this situation and, and have God kind of sign it with, with a big um, magic marker, right? But so much of life is just understanding that God is sovereign and he's always kind of moving the pieces around. Right? And he's got Ruth in this place where she's desperate and she meets her deliverer. This is chapter 2. If you don't know the story, what happens is she's there. She goes to this place. She shows up. She's a foreign woman. She can't hide the fact that she's from Moab. She doesn't look like everybody else. Right? It's a smaller place, so people kind of know her. And she shows up behind the, the workers. The, the, the men worked first, and the women came up, and they did their thing. And then anybody else who was going to try to get any food had to work behind them. So there's three groups, the men, the women that were paid to do the job, and then the people that needed the extra food. And she's there, this one lone, desperate woman in this field. And so it's very obvious. Um, the owner of the field, Boaz, notices her and says, who's that over there? And they say, this is, this is Ruth. That's Naomi's grand, um, daughter-in-law. And she's gleaning. She's, she's trying to get some food today. And, and uh, Boaz says, oh, okay, guys, look, look. What I want you guys to do, I want you to instruct my men, don't touch her. Do not lay a finger on her. She, she's, do, don't, don't do anything to her. Don't bother her. Let her continue to do that. I, she's a good woman. We want to give her success. He, he begins to protect her. He says, and then he calls her and he says, I want you to work with, my, with the girls that are gleaning. And he begins to protect her. And so she meets this wonderful deliverer. And she finds this. She is sheltered under the wings of the Lord. Right? When she comes into the place where God is king, she comes as this foreigner from Moab, a foreign woman, the kind of person that's not supposed to be in Israel because the law says that. And she finds that God is taking care of her. She's under the wings of the Lord. Uh, Mr. Ronson and I, Dean, were in, in, in uh, Zambia this summer and we were taking a walk in a market. And we, we were looking at all the things that we could see and kind of just kind of all you know, kids running around and, and a bunch of chickens were running around. And then under this, kind of off to the side of the road, we saw this one hen sitting on, on a brood of her chicks, right? And they weren't running around. She was just sitting there. Remember this? We took the picture. And the little chicks were gathered up under her wings, right? That was the first time I'd ever seen a hen sitting on her, on the chicks, right? But this is the picture of, of, uh, of God taking care of his own. So God's bringing Ruth, um, this desperate woman, under his wing, taking care of her. Um, she was desperate. She took a risk with God. Seeking him made her vulnerable. She knew that if it didn't work out with him, she would die. But if it did work out, she was going to live. And so she finds that uh, she's, she's being delivered. He was keeping her safe. Boaz eventually married her and you got to read the story about that we can't tell it all but it's, it's, it's a really good thing maybe they'll make a movie about it someday um, I think it'd be romantic 
I'll never watch it. <laughs> Unless Hannah asks me, of course. Um, let me ask you another question. So they're desperate. Let me ask you this, people of God. Do you have to be desperate before you'll go to the deliverer? Do you, do you have to get to that point where you're just, there's nothing else for me, so now I'll finally go? Or can you live with a place, with, with a sense of anticipating that the Lord is already going to take care of you? Do, you, do you? do you need God to take you to that point where life is broken and doesn't work any other way before you go to him? Me, I do that. Right? There are many, many things in which God has to take me far beyond I wish that he did in order to realize that I need a deliverer. I need, I need a mother hen kind of God who will protect me where I can just be still. Right? This is what happened to these women in that place where God was not king. They were there for 10 years before they realized that life would go better with them back home where God was king. So what does it look like to take refuge under, under God's wings? I think it's simple. This story makes it look simple. It means just trust his promises. When Ruth went out to the field, why did she do that? It wasn't that she was trying to work physically anymore. There's, there's a law in Israel that said the, the farmers aren't supposed to glean everything from their fields. They were commanded this. Do you know this? Some of you would know this already. It says, to take care of the poor and the widow and the alien in the land. It said, farmers, when you clean the fields, don't go over them a second time. Don't go to the corners. Make sure you leave something so the alien, the widow, and the, and the, and the foreigner will have something to eat. See, in God's place, he's already considered the needs of everyone. And so they were just simply going out and saying, you know, if this is God's place, I should be able to find some food in one of these fields. For us to take refuge under God's wings, it just means to simply trust him again. Don't you find that uh, when you're out there running on your own, half the problem is that you aren't really taking notice of God's promises? Like, that you just don't take them at face value. You, you just think that, okay, you know, maybe in special circumstances that would apply to me, but um, it, you know, I, I'm not ready to trust that. I'm not, I'm not ready to, 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 to entrust and risk um, that God is actually going to deliver me from this situation if I do just what he says. It can't be as, as simple as trusting Jesus. It can't be as simple as opening this book and going like, oh, maybe I could do that and my life would go better. Don't, don't you find that sometimes we, we complicate it? We, we make it, we make it um, more difficult in ourselves. Still trying to work. Well, Ruth and Naomi, they fall right on God's care. And they go out and, and they receive the benefit of his promise. Um, the desperate find the deliverer. The last thing that I want to share with you, um, as, as I noticed, there's more insights, of course, in this book. You can read and, and see lots of different things. Um, but the, the one that I, that I uh, want to share with you next is this concept of um, the absence of God is replaced by an abundance of his presence. So we have these three things. The bitter get better, the, dis- the desperate find the deliverer, and the absence of God is replaced by an abundance of his presence. When we look at these women in this story, it's easy to understand that they begin in a place of, of poverty. Um, in a sense that they, they, their lives are lacking something. Uh, I'm trying to make the case already, as I say to you, uh, that women in this culture without, without husbands, without means, th- th- their lives were not going to go very well. They needed something. No social net. There's, there's a time in their life they need something. They start off in, in, in poverty. 
When we were in Bolivia, I was looking up for a picture this week because I took a picture of this one um, older woman um, sitting in, in the main square in Bolivia, uh, just squatting. Just a car's driving by, she was just there, just haggard kind of looking with her hand out, um, you know, hoping that, uh, that someone would give her enough money that day to give, get, a, get whatever she needed. And I thought that's so sad. And I, all week long I've been trying to wrestle with my mind thinking, what would it take to take one of the ladies in here all the way to that spot? Like, ladies, can you, can you imagine um, any, situ- any circumstance of events that would get you from where you are living right now to a, to a place on the road with your hand out, sitting on blankets, dirty clothes, not sure where the next meal is going to come from? Like, can that even happen here? I mean, I guess it does, but, but it seems so far away from us that it might not reach up and grab us that, that this is the situation that, that um, Ruth and Naomi are trying to avoid. But it starts off in this place of poverty. It seemed to Naomi that her life had less in it. She says, God has taken stuff away from me. I have less. She said, when I left from Moab, my life was full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. She said that in verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. When we talk about poverty, we need to understand that we're talking about value. People in poverty, um, at least in, in, I think in our society still, uh, sometimes we don't think that people that live in poverty have value to their lives. So I'm not talking about money anymore, okay? I want to talk about value, worth, the worth of a person. What, what makes someone's life valuable? Sometimes we treat people in, 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 uh, in, in these situations where they need tremendous things, where they're desperate, where they become bitter, where where their face looks like they've been cast down by life, um, we treat them as though they have less value. And I'm kind of beginning to think that maybe poverty is more about how we value people than about how people value money. Um, but in this story, I, I see two things that are at work, which are all throughout Scripture, uh, two, two, two movements. God is always at work trying to add value to people's lives, and Satan is always trying to remove value from your life. God is always at work trying to add value to your life. Satan is always trying to remove value from your life. It says that Satan is a destroyer. He comes to, to kill. He, he comes to, you know, to, to, um, to harm us, right? And God adds things to us. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the seal. He calls us his, his treasured possession. We're chosen. A relationship with God adds value to our life. A relationship from Satan, with Satan removes value from our life. These two forces are in the world acting on everybody's life. Um, And even though Scripture proclaims this message to us, many of us in North America, even those um, who believe, don't see Jesus or Satan at work in their lives. So when Jordan was saying, let's pray and have God open our eyes, I I, I thought it was really good, Jordan, um, because when we don't see Satan or Jesus at work in our lives, and don't see um, how Satan has been destroying us or see how Jesus is beginning to redeem us, those of us that are Christian, this is spiritual blindness. And Naomi, I think, at this story, at this moment in time, she'd been blind because she, was, she showed up in town. She says, God is just ruining my life. And yet she shows up with this daughter who had made this amazing, intense pledge, right? And she shows up in the place where, she, where God's about to bless her, right? And so she was blind to what God was already doing in her life. There are two problems with being spiritually blind. Um, first, we accept our poverty, which is the absence of value, as something material rather than spiritual. Naomi was upset because she lost things. 
and people, stuff she could touch, stuff she could understand, stuff that it's here, right? She had lost stuff. We, we accept our poverty, which is the absence of value, as something that is material, a material problem rather than a spiritual problem. That's a spiritual blindness thing. And then, two, we deny ourselves the help that God places right in front of us because we refuse to see it. See, right in the beginning of this book, God was already helping Naomi by giving her Ruth. But Naomi couldn't see it. She had to go through the process of the story, much like we do often, to see that God was blessing her life. So reading in the book of Ruth helps us open our eyes to the presence of God in everyday life. And um, one of the things that I see in this book uh, that helps us to understand how God was here is in the simple symbol of grain. Now, I need to tell you uh, two things. One, I, I, I ran this idea by Pastor Rick, and he said, I wouldn't make much of this. So this is not something that, uh, that I want you to make much of. So I, I just I want to make sure I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to develop an idea that I see. Um, it's not heretical. It's, not, it's nothing bad. I just want to tell you that it's, if Rick was doing this, he might not camp out here the way I'm going to. But um, I think it's because I, I like numbers and um, I like bread. And I'm about to say this next part. part. But, but maybe you'll see it too and maybe you'll agree and when we can vote against um, Rick if he gives a different trip, you know, do a little vote and say, which do you like more, Dwayne or Pastor Rick, and, and decide. Right? That would probably be wrong. But, uh, but let's try it, okay? Um, I wanna, I'm talking to you about the, the, the absence of God's presence uh, to, the, to the understanding that God is abundantly present in your life. And I'm seeing this kind of in, in, symbolized in this story through the presence of, of grain um, that comes into Ruth's life. Okay, there are several parts where we see Ruth getting grain from Boaz. Okay, but before we even get there, let me just tell you, do you know what Bethlehem means? Like we say it all the time, right? Beth means House. So Bethel is the house of God. Lechem, it's my Hebrew, Lechem means bread. Bethlehem, Bethlehem. So let me go back. Elimelech, where God is king, leaves Bethlehem, the house of bread, in a time of famine. Just saying. Okay? Just saying. Okay, Ruth, show, they show up in... In, um, in, in Bethlehem, the end of chapter 1, they arrive in Bethlehem, the house of bread, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Harvest. They're going to get some grain. I think there's a bread that you make with barley. Is that true? Good. All right, so I'm just, I'm just connecting some dots here. You don't have to do this with me, but I'm, I'm seeing this, right? So they show up at this time of harvest. Um, so Ruth goes out. She goes to glean. She meets Boaz. On the first day she meets Boaz, she gets a gift from Boaz. At the end of her day, she goes out. She's just trying to find enough food to kind of get them through whatever they have, right? And she gets a, a, a certain amount of barley grain from Boaz on that first day. It says it's an epha. E-P-H-A-H-F-F-A. Okay, she gets that on the first day. The second day, he says, come back, you can glean in my fields. On the second day, he gives her two more ephahs of, of barley. Okay, now, we don't know what an ephah is, right? 
have no idea what that is. It's, but but uh, I want to give you an idea of, of how much this is because um, these, these three things kind of happen as God is beginning to bless, up, bless in their life and her life is picking up and there's all this hope coming on. And, and as this is happening spiritually in the physical world where we um, sometimes recognize that God is blessing us because we look around and we see, hey, there's some good stuff happening. I have some stuff now, right? She's, she's getting these handfuls of grain on the first day, on the second day. Right? And, and, and Boaz is like, I like you. You should come back here. And then they decide maybe we should try to see if Boaz will want to marry you. Right? And, and Boaz actually has all these fields. Right? These are his fields. Right? So there's just this kind of escalation of barley grain uh, with each day that, that Ruth is out there seeking God on, on, with the deliverer. So I see that. But how much is this effa? Well, I had to do some looking up. You can't find these things very easily, but... Um, I'll tell you the sources, just so you know I did my research, but it was off the internet, so it might discredit everything. Uh, according to the barleyfoods.org, that sounds like an authority, barleyfoods.org, you can make four servings of, of hot barley flakes, who would want to, um, f- for breakfast using a cup of barley, okay? So we're going to, who likes math? Okay, thanks. You guys stay with me. Explain it to everybody else when we're done. Okay? So, there's lots of numbers. So, from one cup you can make four breakfasts of hot barley flakes. So instead of cornflakes, barley flakes, flakes, right? Four bowls, one cup. Um, maybe that would be barley porridge, really, okay? According to another site called ConvertMe, which is not a Christian site, actually, um, according to ConvertMe.com, which is a numerical site, an epha is equivalent to between 88 or 89 cups. Okay? So... So let's go with 88 or 89, whatever that rounds it to, something like that. So from 88 cups in one ephah, that's what she got on the first day, right? So now when I show you my hand, obviously she's not holding that much barley in her hand. She, uh, Boaz was flirting with her on that day. He's like, hey, have some of my grain, <laughs> right? right? Um, and he just dumps it on her, right? And she comes home and she says, Naomi, look, I found some grain today. Who gave that to you? Boaz. Oh, Boaz. Right? It's like that. You've got to see the story. Like, these women start going, ooh, it's Boaz. You know, he's like, he could marry you. Like, really, really? You think he'd want me? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? So they do all that kind of stuff. It's all in the story. Right? So on the first day, she gets the 88 cups. And then the next day, she goes back, and she gets twice that amount. Okay? So after two days of being in Boaz's field, how much barley does she have? She has enough to make 352 servings of hot barley flakes for breakfast, which would be enough to supply them for half a year, the two of them. Two days of work. From abundance, I mean from absence of God's presence to, a, to an abundant sense of his blessing, right? Whether this is true or not, whether that's what that's in there to say, I, I, you know, that's, I can't say that. I just an observation, something that I noticed. It supports my theory, so I'm throwing it in there. But no matter what, um, God is blessing Ruth and Naomi's life. He's, he's making it abundantly clear that you made the right decision when you came to the place where God is king. Because you were hungry for bread, but i got to tell you, Ruth, you were actually really hungry for me. Sometimes, people, we, we, we look at things, the absence of things in our life, and we say, I want that. I need that. I wish I could have an abundance of that thing. But what that desire or that, that need for that material thing is, can represent, I think maybe what it always represents, is an absence of, uh, sorry, a hunger for God in our lives. 
that needs to be satisfied, that only God can satisfy. And that when he does, whether you have the things or not, he didn't replace them with a multitude of husbands or anything like that. This is just bread, right? But, but it's the hunger that Ruth had for God. When she said, your God will be my God, she was turning her back on Chemosh and choosing Yahweh. And she was, her soul was finally being fed because she wasn't after a dead idol God. She was with the living God. And so she's gone from this absence of God's presence in her life and Naomi was feeling the same thing when they left out to Moab and they came back and suddenly God just invades their life and makes them very full again. It's symbolized by the bread, I believe. It's symbolized by Boaz and the wedding. It's symbolized um, by the baby Obed. And it's all there for us to see if we have the eyes that Jesus is always trying to add value to our lives. And it's Satan that's always trying to take it away. So let me ask you this. If, it's, if God can use something like an abundance of barley grains to symbolize his presence in Ruth's life, how might he be symbolizing his presence in your life today in a way that you might have not noticed before? If God can use barley, if barley can be sort of a, a tangible sense of, hey, God is, God is with me. God is in this place. I've moved into the place where God is king, and he's here with me. And, and one of the things I look around and say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm eating again. And I'm, I, got, I got food in the cupboard, right? And I feel that that's God showing me that he's with me. What could it be in your life today that could demonstrate to you that, hey, God is with me. I have an abundant sense of his presence. I think that God wants us to know that he's there. I think he wants us to be encouraged by that. I think he wants us to have a sense that I'm blessing you. And I'm not preaching a health and wealth gospel. I'm not preaching that every Christian gets richer. We always get what we're missing. I'm just saying that I think God says, I, I promise to take care of your needs. And some of your needs I'm going to take care of to a place that, where I do exceedingly, immeasurably more than you could ever ask for. So it just seems to me that as Christians, there could be something in our lives at certain times where we're just not seeing it as God's blessing. And therefore, we're thinking God's absent from our life, yet he's very present adding value. We think we're lacking things. We think we have a poverty, and yet God loves us so much that he's dumping what we really need into our lives, and we're going, oh, but I don't, I don't want that. That's, I, that doesn't mean you're here. So could, could there be something in your life that you just need to open your eyes to and see, hey, God, thanks for that. You're blessing me. I'm in, the, I'm in your place, and, and just like you said, I, I have an abundance, an abundance sense of your presence with me. I was thinking about what we could take away from this story, because for some of us, it'll be very familiar. Uh, I, I love this story. It's short, so you can read it very easily. Um, but the, the sense of, of warning came to me, really, as I was thinking about how, how we could use this story today. And at first, I thought it was for the men, but I realized it's just for all of us who lead families. If we go back to those opening verses and we think about Elimelech and Naomi together, and we think about them in their... In their in their decision to look at their lives, understanding that they were already committed to the Lord, and yet they were in this place where, they were, where things weren't going so well with him because of sin. And so they step out from that. And where do they go? They don't go far away. They only had to go across the border. That's how close Moab was to, to these people. They were across the border. It was just, it was just nearby, actually. And, and Elimelech makes this decision to wander when everybody's being disobedient, and he camps out in the land of Moab. 
and he stays there for 10 years. It says he just wanted, you know, avoid the famine. But uh, he ends up hanging out there for 10 years. He dies. His, his sons die. The decision actually kind of ruins his life. Um, for Elimelech, why did he do this? He did it because he was hungry. He did it because he was hungry. His, his wife was hungry. His boys were hungry. They're like, man, the food's drying up here where God is king. Let's go to the place where, where God's not king and get some food from them. You know, and while we're there, we'll just we'll do a little shopping. We'll, we'll just hang out. We'll intermarry. We'll do all those stuff. It'll, it'll be okay. This is a terrible decision. They should, they should never have done this. God was faithful to them, yes. God brought them back in, yes. God is amazing like that. But Elimelech and Naomi, when they set on this story, they're not setting an example for us. It was the time of the judges. It was a time when they were already being punished as a nation. It was a time when they were seeking help from, a different, from an enemy country with a different God. And they moved their family there because it, it met a need, an important need. People that lead families, and we, a lot of us are leaders of families. Um, we could have this situation in our lives. We could look at, uh, our families might look at us and say, hey, mom, dad, we, we need more stuff. You know, we just, we don't really have enough of, of, of what it takes to kind of cut it in this society. We don't have uh, um, the, expecta- the expected things. You know, we're, we're stuck on TV. We don't have enough TV. We don't have the right amount of internet. We don't have the cell phones. You know, um, we don't have enough money left over after you keep giving to the church, mom and dad. And so mom and dad can make a decision. You know what? Okay, that's the place where God is, and it doesn't feel right. So let's just leave that place. Let's camp out in a new place. Let's, let's give some more money to something else that'll, that'll make us feel good about those things, that some other situation that'll give us those things that we're lacking. I want to warn you, parents, be careful about that decision. Don't let that thing cause you to drift out from Bethlehem into Moab, from Yahweh to Chemosh. It could be when your family gets bored of God. You're raising your family in the church, and suddenly nobody cares about church anymore. And you're thinking, well... I thought this was a, this would be good for my family. You know, this was going to draw us closer. We were going to have fun on Sundays, but you know, we're not having fun on Sundays anymore. So we're going to go do some fun stuff on Sunday. We're going to go and be a family again. We're going to go and 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 take in baseball games or basketball games or head off to this place or that place. Let me let me encourage you, families. Don't lead your families away from where God is king. There's no blessing there that you can count on. We need to lead our families right to where God is king. That's where the blessing is. That's where we experience bitterness being changed to betterness and deliverance for those that are desperate and the, an abundance of God's presence for those who have had an absence of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this time that we spent together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. But Lord, mostly, thank you that the God that we read about, uh, you've taken great pains to make sure that we understand that this God, you, are real. And Lord, you draw us to your place. So Lord, I pray, 
I pray on behalf of, of every family and every, everybody that has willingly stepped out of that place where you are the king, where, you, where they let you be sovereign, um, when they've used uh, the excuse of things aren't going well with the Lord, so I'm going to break out on my own, and I'm going to covenant myself to someone else or something else. Lord, would you, would you spare us from all the wrath and the pain that comes from that if we turn back to you and come home? Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.